Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church. And this is the thing, when you read the Bible, you just don't want to read a verse in isolation. So when we teach the Bible and when we preach through the Bible here, we typically go verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, book by book, because everything has a context. There's a flow of thought and a discourse. When we teach through Revelation starting in May, you know, a lot of times people pull verses out of context out of Revelation. We're going to follow the thought and see that that book is not so mysterious as we might think it is. I can see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every giant will fall The mountains will move Every chain of the past You've broken into All the fear of the lies We're singing the truth That nothing is impossible With you Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Grace to Live radio broadcast with Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the program. Today we'll be taking a slight detour from our typical verse-by-verse study of the Bible to hear a live question-and-answer service that took place recently at Hillside Church where Pastor Keith fielded questions from the congregation and the community live during the worship service. Now here's Pastor Keith to begin this live Q&A broadcast. What if a person's view of the end times differs from Hillside's statement of faith, but is still an orthodox view? That's a great question. There are three types of doctrine in my mind. There's first-level doctrine, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not works. There are other levels. One of them might be eschatological, that is, in times. And then there's a third, uh, a second level might be, uh, yeah, and then there are other levels. And so this is not a salvation issue. And so it's not a first-level doctrine. However, uh, every church has a statement of faith, pretty much. We are premillennial, and I will be dealing with the different end-time views during our upcoming series on Revelation anyway. But if it's an orthodox view, you're welcome here. Obviously, that would not be a view that you would teach in contradiction to what we teach here. And obviously, you could not be an elder or something like that, uh, holding a different view than our statement of faith. So you're welcomed here. Not everybody agrees about everything all the time, not even in my family. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's a good one. Second, do you think the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Adair, near Bethlehem, is the manger where Christ was born? This would answer the question as to how the shepherds knew where to look for the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, one wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I've been looking into this for the last few Christmases. Um, Typically, when God wants us to know a detail, it's revealed in Scripture. Uh, Which tower or which manger Jesus was born into is probably immaterial. If it was important, it would have been revealed to us. Uh, How could the shepherds find the right one? 
Well, you think about this. Number one is Bethlehem is a very, if you've ever been there, how many of you have been to Bethlehem, by the way? Okay. It's not large now, and it was even smaller then. You know, when Herod sent the, uh, his army or, or military guys to try to kill the Messiah, and they, you know, slaughtered the infants, two years old and under, that was probably about 20 kids. So we're thinking of not, don't think of Bethlehem as Hill, as, uh, San Jose or Los Angeles, very small. Secondly, the angel said you would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That rules out everybody's house, pretty much. That rules out the inns, and that narrows it down. And so uh, there was uh, a place where they stored uh, or cared for sacrificial animals for the temple near Bethlehem. Uh, But we have no indication, no proof, and no certainty that that was where Christ was born. There's the idea of kind of making that a symbol because he was a sacrificial lamb, this, that, and the other. But there were numbers of places you could be. And God didn't reveal that to us so that we wouldn't go there and worship like so many people do today. In Jerusalem, there are all these fake shrines where people go. And this is where they found Jesus' toenail. And this is where they found a nail from the cross. And this is, you know, and so I don't know. And neither, no one can know with certainty, but, you know, um, I always hesitate to go beyond what the Bible says. So I would just leave that there. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on Julie Roy's report regarding John MacArthur's wealth or her ministry in general? Also, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the list of qualifications for an elder, one of them being above reproach, if an elder falls into immorality but repents and lives a life of repentance for several years can the elder recover being above reproach that's two questions so I'm going to charge you double no Julie Roy's there are so many quack ministries out there who are just looking for trouble and stuff like that I did go look at her report and things like that and uh, you know when you make your living throwing stones at other people you know so I don't yeah, I'm not, I'm not impressed. I've been, to, I've been to his house, and so I know what his house looks like, and he's not living like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or any of these fake uh, prosperity preachers. So, yeah, and there was another report that, you know, he'd almost died of COVID because he wasn't in the pulpit in December, but typically John takes most of the month of December off. So at least he has for the last 40 years. Uh, so anyway, so much for Julie Roy. Can an elder fall? into immorality, and by immorality I interpret that as sexual sin, um, and recover. Uh, Anybody who repents of sin is forgiven, but if you're an elder, and as a Christian, and as an elder, you fall into immorality, you're done leadership-wise, because you are not above reproach, and as somebody, as James talks about in James 3, who's held to a stricter standard, and you're in that standard, and you cheat on your wife or do something like that. Um, You can hand out bulletins and you can serve in the church, but your days in leadership have come to an end permanently. Now, there are cases where I know of an elder where their wife abandons them or cheats on them through no fault of their own and they have to step down. It's conceivable that after 10 or 15 years, they could step back up again, maybe. If there was no fault of their own, you would have to investigate that thoroughly but you know we're going to be talking today with a leadership group after church about the qualifications for an elder and you have to be above reproach you really do and uh, part of that is 
not having been an adulterer. So, okay. So, uh, and then one other question that was given me uh, before the service was, why are Christians or why are all Christians homophobes? First of all, to my knowledge, Christians don't hate and are not afraid of homosexuals. That would rule them out being a homophobe. There might be one or two who are, I don't know. But the question assumes prejudice and reveals its own prejudice. Why are all Christians homophobes? Why are Christians homophobes? That, assume, that makes an assumption about the nature and character of everybody who has named the name of Christ. What have I said? Why are all black people this way? Why are all Latino people this way? Why are all women this way? Why are, you see the prejudice that's loaded, front loaded into the question, right? We live in a culture today that labels and demonizes anything that doesn't suit it. And so we call people all kinds of names. You know, you could call the leadership team of the church, the elders, misogynist because the Bible says women can't be elders. You could call them homophobes because homosexuality is a sin. I mean, you can label anybody anything anytime when it suits you or doesn't. But you really have to take the log out of an eye out. I would suggest before you take the speck out of somebody else's. Okay, next question. How do we show Christian hospitality during a pandemic? That is a great question. Well, a couple of things. One is uh, you can practice hospitality as we tried to do as a church at the height of the pandemic by doing nice things for people, whether it's dropping things off at their house or sending them a note or a card. You know, you can Zoom with people. You can invite them to talk to you. I mean, it's awkward, odd, weird, right? But we're living in unparalleled times. And so you can have people over to your house. You want to keep distance, maybe wear a mask, things like that. We, we know how, you know, I know that, you know, just like right now, we had the uh, Supreme Court decision that says we can meet, but Sarah Cody says we can't because she's looking for a different answer to the Supreme Court, which is... We know how seriously the government takes it, whether you look at Gavin Newsom going to dinner with a bunch of people or or, or Sam Licardo having 27 people in his backyard at Thanksgiving, whatever. You know, you can have people over at your house, okay? You can invite them. You can observe social distancing like we do here. Be wise, be hospitable, be uh, considerate. Just try to show people a welcoming attitude no matter how you can take that opportunity. Okay, next question. What is a progressive Christian? I struggle with the idea that a Christian can be progressive. Abortion, approval of transgender indoctrination, K through 12, critical theory, etc. Is being woke necessarily bad? Boy, that, that, that's a lot of stuff there. It sure is. A progressive Christian, and we, we kind of dealt with this before. Somebody asked in the previous service, you know, what do you think about being a one-issue voter? Okay. You know, and the, and the whole thing was kind of the pro-life thing. And, you know, obviously I'm, a, I'm a opposed to the murder of children, born and unborn. But a progressive Christian, it comes very close to being an oxymoron. I'll just be a contradiction in terms, like a non-lethal poison or a harmless cigarette. And why do I say that? Well, t- typically more and more they reject the authority of the Bible not all of them, but some of them. Look at the dying and dead mainline denominations. They are not excited about defending the lives of those who are oppressed even before they're born, the unborn. They always have a good excuse or an extreme case of why an abortion in some case could be justified. They, you know, if it's the uh, abortion issue, 
If it's the uh, transgender indoctrination in California school systems, K through twelfth grade, or if it's homosexuality, they tend to line up sometimes uh, in opposition to the Bible. That's, I, I just don't know how you can do that. And as far as woke being bad, woke is bad today, right? I mean, critical theory is just racism in reverse. You're going to do it to the people that you think did it to you. We talked through that very, very, very thoroughly before, and there's no nice way to say it. Um, the idea that woke was once a nice word, well, here's the thing. You have to look at the ideology that undergirded that. And ideologies often seem harmless until they gain ascendancy. Just like during the Weimar Republic in Germany, you know, uh, there was a, a chancellor who was, who was popularly elected based on his economic policies, but he later asked to be called the Fuhrer, right? And so the whole woke game is kind of a thing where we, we see what it is full-blown today. Good people, without digging too deeply, bought into the ideology that it's all about power and oppression. But like I said, we've dealt with that sufficiently here. Uh, Maybe there were people who were in the woke movement years ago, years ago, who didn't know any better or who this is what it meant to them. But today it is a, a critical theory is a different religion with a different God and a different canon. So you have to be careful as a Christian how you label yourself progressive, what you believe, and make sure that what you believe lines up with Scripture, not your preference or not your emotions or not your culture. We are transcultural. We are supracultural. Our culture is defined by the Bible, which is the Word of God. Okay? All right. Why does Jesus have to be the only way? Okay, yeah. Because he's God, and he makes the rules. And his rules are, by definition, right. His choices, by virtue of him being God and perfectly righteous, are right. They're true. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, either he's a liar or he's not. You know, uh, there's been no one like him in history, and that's why you're saved by faith. You put your trust in him and what he's accomplished for you in the resurrection, in dying in your place for sin, and then you just look at the world around you. When you look at the Bible, it pretty well makes, helps you make sense of your existence. It reveals the promise, the coming of Christ. All history points back to his birth, before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, or B.C.E., C.E., however you want to do that. Uh, there's never been anyone like him in history. He's had no armies. He never went more than 250 miles from his hometown. He didn't rob caravans. He didn't marry his son's wife, like the leader of another religion. Um, And there's never been anybody like him. And he claims to be God. And so you either believe that or you don't. And that's the basis for Christianity. If If he's not the only way, then he's worse than a lunatic. He's a liar. So if you're a Christian, he's the only way. When somebody says to me, I've seen this on TV where you have some wishy-washy person who's trying to be all things to all people in a culturally pleasing, uh, thoughtless way. He'll say, we know I'm a Christian and for the Christian, this is true, but it may not be true for you. Truth is objective. It's not opinion. 
You know, we live in an era where we treat opinions as if they were truth. Not all opinions matter. Not all opinions are created equal. I might be of the opinion that if I jump headfirst off onto the floor, that it's not going to hurt. But that's really not true. You might be of the opinion that I'm seven feet tall, but that wouldn't be true either. And somebody might be of the opinion that there are many ways to heaven, and that's equally nonsensical and untrue. So, all right. And I don't speak as a Christian. I speak as somebody who believes the Bible, who is a Christian. Yeah, okay. Can you help me understand the blessed statements in the Beatitudes? Do we need to have these attitudes to become blessed? What's our motive? Can you explain lay up treasure in heaven, the lay up treasure in heaven command? Okay, well, that's in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, uh, roughly 2,200 English words and about 2,150 Greek words. But the idea where it starts off describing the conduct of a Christ follower, the conduct of someone who is already saved. The one who is poor in spirit is blessed. The word order is a little bit different in the Greek. The one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is blessed. They're blessed because they've surrendered their soul to Christ. They've surrendered themselves to God. They've become Christ followers, God followers. They've been born again, and therefore they are blessed. And those attitudes manifest themselves in them and give them away and reveal them as who they are, Christ followers. Yeah. The um, lay up treasure in heaven command And this is the thing, when you read the Bible, you just don't want to read a verse in isolation. So when we teach the Bible and when we preach through the Bible here, we typically go verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, book by book, because everything has a context. There's a flow of thought and a discourse. When we teach through Revelation starting in May, you know, a lot of times people pull verses out of context out of Revelation. We're going to follow the thought and see that that book is not so mysterious as we might think it is. And we're going to read it and say, what does the text say? What are the words saying? What do they mean? And how then shall we live? So what's going on there when it says, lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth, for where your heart is, your treasure is also. He's talking about priorities there. He's saying, if you're all about money, you're all about the things of this world, you know, those things can be taken away from you. But if you're about things that are of eternal importance or consequence, lay up treasure in heaven where the moth doesn't chew up things, the thief does not steal, things don't rust or wear out. He's talking about souls, not about cash. And he goes on to say it's impossible to serve God and mammon in some translations or God and the world or God and wealth. And so he's really talking about the mindset of somebody who is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit who knew they needed a savior and surrendered to him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they realize that everything they do, think, and say is worship. And so that's kind of the context there. The command isn't try to stack up money in heaven. This, you know, and it's not like the prosperity teachers here on earth who say lay out money down here on earth. The, the command there is part of a larger discourse that speaks to having the right priorities the right focus, the right object of your worship, okay? Next, why didn't Jesus write any books in the Bible? Because the whole Bible's about him and God used men to write the books. 
God, it says in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, maybe to 24, that men were carried away, by, carried by the Holy Spirit, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any personal, private interpretation, isn't the invention of man. The Bible is a book about Jesus. If you think about the Trinity, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you could say Jesus wrote every book of the Bible, and that those red letters, you know, and some of you guys have like red letter Bibles, have the words of Jesus in red, the whole Bible should be in red. One God, three persons, Trinity, right? Okay? All right, next. Sometimes I feel as if I don't do enough ministry. I'm older and retired, and during COVID, I've been confined to my home. When you talk about decluttering and refocusing, how might I go about doing this? There's a context to that question. We talked about earlier this year, I did a sermon about, uh, you know, refocusing and reprioritizing your life around the will of God. And sometimes there are things that have to go that get in the way of serving God and doing, and doing ministry. And I would point out to this individual, as I have pointed out to many people with small children, we go through seasons of life. You know, when you've got three or four bambinos or bambinas, you've got your hands full. So you might not be able to serve as much as you can when those kids become like, you know, self-maintaining automobile batteries, you know, they feed themselves and all that kind of stuff. And when you get older, you know, if you get, you know, like me, you've got less juice than you had 25 years ago. And so, and then in COVID, if you're retired on limited income, maybe you can't make it to church. You know, we have people who are viewing online, but maybe, you know, we, we email prayer lists. We give opportunities to serve in different ways. There's a lot of ways to serve based on your physical opportunity, your physical proximity, your health, or your season of life. And so, you know, sometimes feelings are, uh, deceive us because we don't feel like we do enough. Well, I mean, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a great sentiment, but maybe between COVID, your age, and everything else, and your infirmity, you're not able to do that. Do not beat yourself up. Now, there are some people who are sitting at home in their pajamas week after week watching church on television pre-COVID. There's the problem. You know, you, you, we should be, you know, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together, but we should be finding a way to get together with the people of God to do the work of God. That really comes down to a hard attitude. And when I read that question, I don't think that individual has a bad or a wrong heart attitude. But then that's just me. Okay? Next question. Recently, we have seen fallen ministers. What do we do with Joshua Harris or Ravi Zacharias books? Do we throw them away? Boy, that's a great question. Um, And just, you know, uh, Joshua Harris revealed that he wasn't a Christian. You know, he was going through the motions. He grew up in a... How many times do we see this? Somebody grows up in a Christian home and they speak Christianese. They learn to speak the language. They want to please their parents. They want to please the people around them. And they conform outwardly until they can't conform anymore. And they reveal that they were never, never saved to start with. They knew about God, but they didn't know God. They may have believed that they believed, but they didn't. You know, and so they walk away from the faith. Sometimes uh, our children or our siblings walk away for a season. Maybe they have a dry spell. What Joshua Harris has revealed clearly, and I think in a very gracious way compared to others is that he's not a believer and that means he was never a believer so his books you know I mean he's just 
you know, I, I wouldn't be handing them out to anybody. Throw them away, I don't, you know, that's your call. Um, I typically don't commend books by people who have gone off the rails. Pastor Keith Crosby with today's Grace to Live radio broadcast. We are so grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with us today here on the program. And if you have questions about today's show, or if you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Keith, then I would encourage you to visit our website, hillsidechurch.org. There you can listen to past sermons and other content from Pastor Keith just by clicking the Sermon Archive tab. And you can also find links to Pastor Keith's blog, as well as the Out of My Mind podcast. The website is also a great place to connect with us here at Hillside. You can find information on our service times, ministry opportunities, and of course you can browse our calendar of upcoming events. Again, all this and much, much more can be found by visiting our website, hillsidechurch.org. Well, we hope that you'll join us again next time on Grace to Live. But until then, I'm your host, Kevin Reeves, and on behalf of Pastor Keith and everyone here at Hillside Church, it is our prayer that the Lord will richly bless you, and thanks for listening. Amen.